Today, we're talking about how healthcare workers deal with a sudden change to relative calm following a period of hectic madness. I'm Kat Chatfield, a trained GP with an interest in quality and patient safety. And I'm Abby Rimmer, careers editor at the BMJ with an interest in wellbeing. Kat and I co-lead the BMJ's campaign on wellbeing, which is particularly pertinent right now. Today, we'll be talking to a British Labour Party politician who stood against the Prime Minister Boris Johnson in his London constituency during the 2019 election. We'll hear how he coped with the stress and what it was like when the campaign came to an end. Might there be lessons for healthcare workers now that the deluge of COVID-19 patients is subsiding? I think that's a hard thing to say isn't it that the deluge is subsiding I think although in the UK at least we're past the peak I certainly feel that um, NHS frontline staff probably don't feel that the deluge has subsided but more that we're into the long long haul which must be incredibly difficult. I wonder if there'll be any lessons for people who maybe are switching out of jobs I'm thinking particularly about trainees who might end up rotating in September so people like my sister who might rotate out of currently working in a very very busy ICU into actually not having a a permanent role so I imagine that kind of step might in some way reflect Ali's experience with the election but be really interesting to see what he's got to say. Yeah absolutely and I think the other thing that I've been thinking about is is the uncertainty I think, you know, we've all at the moment we're thinking, when is this all going to end? When is life going to get back to some semblance of normal? Um, I guess at least with the election, you've got an end date, but you you literally don't know what that future is going to be after that point, um, whether it's going to be you, you know, in Parliament or whether it's going to be you doing something else that's that's undefined, having seen all your work for months on end, just, just come to, I guess, essentially nothing. That's a really good point. Are you working really hard up to a point where then you're working even harder because you're elected or are you working really hard up to a point where you then have to rethink what you're doing? And I wonder if we'll find any parallels there between what healthcare staff might might experience, maybe not now, but in the future. And I think that's the, that the kind of thing about the refocusing of goals as well. You know, we talked about in our um, podcast with Caroline Walker around COVID fatigue, you know, in those initial phases, there was such a clear vision for what people were trying to achieve, which was to kind of flatten the curve, reduce the peak, um, and make sure that the healthcare system was as robust as it could be to deal with COVID. But now we're sort of dealing with um, not just how do we deal with COVID patients, new COVID patients, how do we keep infections down, but how do we deal with the long-term sequelae of people who've had COVID and rehab? Um, and how do we deal with all those other cases that have built up a backlog while we've been focused on COVID, you know, the elective surgery and, and all of those things, routine cancer treatment. Um, so that kind of real shift in focus and and I guess the sense of feeling quite directionless. Um, I'd be interested to hear his reflections on that and, and whether he feels there are parallels. My name's uh, Ali Malani. I uh, was the parliamentary candidate uh, in Uxbridge and South Ryslip for the Labour Party in 2019. Uh, so I had the interesting task of running against Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister. Uh, since December 13th, 2009, a lot more free time on my hands. <laughs> <laughs> You've given us a bit of background there, but we wondered if you could kind of tell us a bit more about you, where you've come from, how you got to where you are. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, my family came to the UK uh, when I was five years old. So uh, we were immigrants from Iran. So I'm really, I was born in Tehran, Iran. 
uh, and I came to the UK when I was five. And um, essentially, that was part of, you know, the, the interesting story of, of myself versus Boris Johnson, because uh, my candidacy was, was pretty out of the norm, even in politics today. And so I, I had the a journey that and, a, and a, a sort of growing up process that won't be an extraordinary story to many, many people, but um, it is an extraordinary story for someone who eventually runs against the prime minister in that I grew up on a council estate. My mum relied on state benefits uh, and, and sort of the child tax credits and that sort of stuff uh, growing up. So I was really a, a child of the welfare state. The school I went to, you know, we, we, we lost a lot of friends to knife crime. Uh, there was a lot of poverty um, and a relative a sort of psychology of, of a lack of uh, opportunity. Um, there was a real ceiling that we set for ourselves in our own minds as to what is and isn't possible. Um, I'm currently writing a book about the campaign and one of the bits that reflect that I reflect on is, is if, if you had told me when I was, say, 13, 14, that I would have run against the prime minister, run to be a member of parliament alone, um, I probably would have laughed you out the room. It's still fr- pretty funny today, but uh, even then I would have uh, laughed you out, out the room. So I got a phone call uh, on a on a winter's day asking me, you know, because I lived in Uxbridge and Southwest, so that's how actually I got to stand there was because my university was there and I just stayed in Uxbridge uh, after I graduated. And I got a phone call uh, from someone asking me if I'd consider standing uh, in Uxbridge and South Ryslip, uh, to which I said no, and I hung up the phone. The conversation lasted about two and a half minutes. Uh, and then I was harassed for about a couple of weeks from people essentially telling me, wouldn't it be just the most interesting, extraordinary story if a Muslim immigrant from a council estate who lived the life that you'd lived and the journey that you lived at your age stands against Boris Johnson, who wasn't then the prime minister. Um, and so I kind of decided to do it genuinely not believing I would win. I thought, you know, if I stand, uh, more young people will come, people who are, who are in the party who don't traditionally participate will come to the to the nomination meeting and ultimately they will get a say on who their real candidate is. Right. Um, and yes, at that point, it was just Boris Johnson. He was just, you know, the, the bumbling MP, the sort of celebrity, the caricature. Uh, and then he became foreign secretary. He might have even been foreign secretary by that point. And then he became the prime minister. And then I knew I was in it. Uh, <laughs> and I knew I'd really got myself into it. Um, so um, tell us more about the campaign, Ali. Um, was it the most stressful experience of your entire life? Uh, stressful, uh, exhausting, exciting. It was every emotion. It, I mean, the interesting part was for most candidates, ca- campaigning takes about six weeks. For us, it was a year because the Labour Party was going through this process of selecting candidates early because we just didn't know when a general election was coming. So um, I got selected in September 2018 and the election was December 2019. So it was just over a year, a year and a couple of months. And our campaign in many ways was very, very different to traditional campaigns insofar as we had at one point more press requests than most of the front bench, barring Jeremy Corbyn, I think. And we were making more press appearances than most. So it was uh, probably the most ex- emotionally exhausting experience because campaigns are a real roller coaster there. And, you know, you ask people that were close to me, there were days that I was sure I was going to win. There were days that I was 100% certain I was going to lose. Uh, there were days that I, I, you know, considered dropping out. And so because it takes such a long period of time and it's such a, an emotionally vulnerable activity to partake in, the day after the election, I'd, you'd 
party, political party or ideological position aside, you just collapse because uh, being a parliamentary candidate is really about, and specifically with the amount of attention we had, was about exposing yourself completely and being naked to not just your constituents, but for us, it ended up being the country. It was a real emotional roller coaster, the whole thing. I mean, it sounds exhausting just listening to you describing it. And I wonder how you coped with going through that emotional roller coaster. I know you said you, you enjoy kind of fast paced environments, but that sounds like moments of kind of extreme pressure. So how did you deal with that? Um, I had, a, so I have a couple of ways that I, that, I, that I dealt with it. I mean, ultimately it took time. Uh, when it first started, it was very, very difficult not to react uh, in initial feelings to things. Uh, like if someone writes a headline that I'm very, very unhappy with, not to just pick up the phone to a, to a journalist and go, what are you doing? Um, or when someone writes things that were just completely untrue, not reacting in, a, in, a, a, in the initial emotional uh, response that hits you. So that a certain element of that takes time. Uh, I have been doing a little bit of talking to, to people who want to get involved in politics and particularly young people. And I, I, one of my best pieces of advice is start the campaign with a group of people that you trust and that you can talk to. It's really important not to not talk to anyone, if that makes sense, because you're always worried about what you say getting out and having that vulnerable moment with people. But if you can find two, three, four people, it can be parents, it can be relatives, it can be wives, husbands, whatever, friends, pick a small group of people that you can have a uh, an honest conversation with when things happen. And that allows you to process things as they're happening. And so... That that was really, really helpful for me in that when something happened or when I, when I was going through something difficult at, at a time, uh, I had people to talk to and I could... It wasn't even necessarily about the, the, the actual advice that they give you, but more about you being able to, to verbalise it and, and, and paint the picture of what's going on. Uh, so that was, that, that was really, really helpful. One of the real interesting parts of, of what I do is uh, I try to remind myself why I got into politics because that clarity as to purpose is really, really important in getting yourself through difficult times. I wrote a personal statement, uh, a really idealistic personal statement about why I got involved in politics to go to university. You know, the things you write to universities uh, that I'm, I'm convinced having worked amongst universities at NUS and at a student union that they don't read, uh, but we write them anyway. Uh, so I made it a point to read that about every six weeks to remind myself as to why I got in and give yourself that both that intellectual and emotional clarity as to why you're doing what you're doing. And that can drive you through, uh, through the difficult times. So all of those things helped in dealing with it, uh, talking to people, being able to verbalize it and, and uh, giving yourself the emotional clarity. But ultimately, I think it was an acceptance that things are going to get be hard and things are going to be good. And they're going to be bad days and they're going to be good days. Uh, and being able to accept it means not running from it. When you have a bad day, you've had a bad day and it's okay. There are going to be more and there are also going to be good days. Um, so appreciating the good days and knowing that the bad days aren't the end of the world. That sort of emotional acceptance, because it was such a long campaign, it was inevitable that I reached that position. I might not have if it was only a six-week campaign. So that's, that's really interesting, that sense of 
how it was really, really difficult at the beginning. Um, and then you found that it was really up and down. And so many times you felt like, I can't do this. It's too much. Um, but then did you feel that when you got to that longer point, that six month point, did you start to believe more in yourself and the cyclical nature of it? Did you find that you found that extra level of resilience or am I just putting words into your mouth? No, no, you, that's that's 100% right. I uh, The more... Uh, the longer it took and the more I engaged and the, 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 the more experience I picked up, the more I realized that, that I had faith in my own self, um, in our ability to tell our message. But also it's, it's a thing of it, that fast paced nature is actually in and of itself a, a sort of blessing because things are moving so quick. You don't have enough time to dwell on one bad decision. And, and so that fast paced nature kind of helps you deal with it. And that is where from an emotional, psychological perspective, the day after the election was much tougher than anything uh, in the lead up to, because you didn't have anything to keep you moving forward. So Ali, you kind of had this incredibly stressful year and all these highs and the lows, and then you get to the night of the election results. Can you tell us what that was like? The biggest burden on my shoulders and the most difficult thing that I felt on the election night itself was A, it's an incredibly long day. So we start at 4 a.m., and we finish at about 6, 7 a.m. the next day. So the most difficult part was how much was riding on our victory. I think a lot of people had put so much hope and so much of their own time and money into our campaign that uh, it was uh, really, really difficult going into the count knowing that they had placed all that hope on you. Uh, And uh, by about 5 p.m. I knew I hadn't won. And so it was about tempering expectations and making sure that people didn't lose hope. You know, there's a, there's a thing after after 10 p.m. when polls close where you kind of feel hopeless and helpless. You don't know what, there's nothing more that you can do. It's over. Um, and so the the funniest part was as you go into the count, when there's still a chance of you winning, you have all these cameras on you and people like, it's it's like a scene out of a movie where no one's even letting you in and things like that. And journalists are following you. And then when you've lost, literally no one cares. <laughs> you walk out and everyone's like, who's that? And if you don't wear your red rosette, they might not even notice you. Um, so that that coming down um, was was itself uh, quite difficult as well. But election day is uh, is the whole election sort of compartmentalized into one single day. So everything we've went through over the last 15 months, we went through in one single day. All of it happened again. But it was also one of the most exciting, you know, days of my life. I also had, I did have to speak and meet with Boris Johnson himself as well that day, which was, <laughs> which was fun. <laughs> so you talked, Ali, about the, the coming down. Uh, so what what happened then? How did you cope with the period after the election? How did it feel? The, the the period after the election was really, really difficult. And ultimately, I think I went to the United States to escape it because you go from complete urgency, day to, like real fast-paced day-to-day life. Everybody wants to hear what you have to say. You have a target. You have an end point. You know this is election day and everything, uh, your life revolves around that single day. My friends, my family, people didn't see me for months because all we did was election. And all of a sudden that finishes, that ends. Your whole life kind of changes within a single evening. And that was really, really difficult because 
it it kind of felt like being super lonely all of a sudden. So, you know, your phone's not ringing anymore. Uh, you're, you don't have a place to be. You don't have anything to do. All that kind of stuff was really, really difficult. Uh, I went to pick up milk because I slept in the, the day after and I went to pick up milk. Uh, and this guy walked up to me, looked me dead in the eye. And previously people were like, we voted for you. We love you. Keep doing what you're doing. And then the, ne- the very next morning I go to pick up milk and this guy walks up to me, looks me dead in the eye and just as labor is expletive and then walks out the room, doesn't even say hello. Um, and my co- the guy who, who owns the corner shop next to me obviously knows me and he was like, that's a really humbling moment for you, isn't it? I was like, yep, we've, we've come right back to reality. Um, so your life changing so quickly within an evening was really, really difficult. It can feel really lonely. Uh, I know a lot of candidates went through uh, some real difficult emotional, psychological time. I, like I said, I ran away to the United States looking for more, for hope in a different political world. I went to campaign for Bernie Sanders. Dealing with that emotion was probably much more difficult than anything we did in the election because you had nothing to, 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 you had no next thing to get you through it. But I guess ultimately the thing that I learned about it was A, it, it probably did me a world of good in terms of remembering that core reason why we got involved uh, in in taking a step away from the limelight and being able to read reread some of the stories of what people told me, reflect on the experience. But that period, that for about a period of two or three months, it was really, really quite difficult because everything that was the norm is no longer the norm. I think that's um, a really nice place to sort of ask you the next question because we one of the reasons we wanted to speak to you was because we were thinking about what it might be like post-COVID-19 pandemic for healthcare workers who have, have been having a really stressful time and maybe move into a slightly different situation. I wonder if, if you think your experience might be in any way comparable with what healthcare workers might experience. Uh, I think so. I think there will be uh, a lot of similarities uh, insofar as the world is going to look like a very different place. Uh, and my world was a very, very different place the night after December December 12th and being able to cope with that. Uh, I imagine a lot of healthcare workers are seeing and dealing with things that are really difficult, uh, emotionally taxing, but not being able to process them because you have to get up and go to work the next day. Uh, I had one of my best friends is a, is a doctor dealing with it and I was FaceTiming him the other day and he was saying, he came to us with, on the campaign trail and we were saying the same thing. He was saying, you know, we just don't have time to process it. So they may end up in the same position where... Only once it's done do you start to process what's just happened, all the stories, the lives, the faces. Uh, and that's ultimately the most difficult thing for them. And, and what, I mean, I don't, I don't want to c- compare it because it's much more difficult for them. But they are seeing faces. You know, when, when you walk into an ICU ward, you're seeing people's faces and then they're gone. You're connecting with people. And, you know, we knocked on doors and we, connect, we saw faces and we connected with people and we felt like we'd let them down ultimately when, when, we, when we didn't win. Um, one of the toughest part was just feeling like you failed and that helplessness of not being able to help them, whether you're in an ICU ward, not being able to fight this thing off, uh, or you're watching people's votes be counted and not being able to influence it anymore. Um, and ultimately, I think both are matters of life and death bearing in mind that healthcare workers do have it much, much more difficult because they're putting their own lives on the, on the line currently. So 
I, I you know my 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 advice would be uh we can't you can't we can't run from it you know there's no way to to suppress that emotion and and that experiences that that, that you've gone through for a lot of people it would it, it it will help to talk to someone someone you know professionally uh, I know a lot of parliamentary candidates went through counseling and things like that afterwards and 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 they found that helpful uh but ultimately yes the world is going to be very very different uh and we will all have to process it in the same ways i i found talking to people really really did help again not necessarily for the advice that they're giving you but just being able to talk through your own experiences and unlock things that you're thinking but you're not allowing yourself to think and 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 that process of being able to verbalize what you've seen what you've gone through helps you in processing and getting through the the reflective phase of of what's just happened and then i would say they will have done everything that they can the same way that we thought we had done everything that we can and in 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 that sense it's about finding the best moment to to move on um so for me that was after a couple of months going right in order for me to be able to move on i have to throw myself back into back into another campaign i need to find hope again uh where where can that hope be well you know what bernie was doing out in the us was really really exciting and we got in touch with them and they were like yeah come out and 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 so we went out there um that doesn't necessarily need to be in my opinion within the same field that you're working that you someone might decide so one of my friends is looking into going this experience has taught me that I want to go into public health more uh he's a practicing doctor but he might want to throw himself into you know being able to avoid future things like this happening making sure we're better prepared for it and all that kind of thing but you know ultimately i think it's about not resisting that your world is going to change there's very little control we have on that part and when my world changed i tried to resist it for a little while <laughs> to no avail the one thing i know about myself and i know about i'll say all of healthcare workers is we didn't get in it for the money uh we got in it for the same reason that i read that personal statement that i wrote to myself because they want to help people and you know it's good to remind yourself you did help people and you can continue to help people and yes the world will change but that that spirit that energy that that core reason as to why we do it hasn't gone away you've made cat cry i'm actually crying <laughs> oh i i like, oh, I, up here. I apologize but look no it's good it's good crying <laughs> it's it's it, it it isn't it isn't a lie to say that i was more hopeful the day after than i was the day before and the opportunity that whether it's with covid or it it gives us an opportunity to rebuild uh, you know i i i try and live by the covenant what martin luther king said the the walkway to justice is long but it always arches towards justice so we always bend towards the right way sometimes it takes us a little bit long to get there so i was more hopeful the day i lost than i was the day i got in uh, and i think we can be more hopeful the day after corona than we were the day before and it, it i mean it's personal for me i lost my dad to the to coronavirus so uh, in terms of personal family how much it's the toll it's taken on us i i i i feel that but we just have to take the opportunity to rebuild and reshape and make sure we're better prepared uh, and society looks looks radically different uh the day after that's the opportunity that it presents us and i don't i'm, I'm sure we'll take it because people are good 
I I believe I genuinely believe that people are good. I the people the people that I met on the campaign trail are good, forgiving, well-meaning. Uh, they just need better leaders, and that's that's partly my job to give it to them. Well, that was as usual, really, really interesting. I think um, what really struck me when I was listening to Ali talk was about having that group of people that you can talk to and not necessarily a large group of people but people that you really trust that who can just help you process what's going on in your own head um, and it reminded me of the podcast we did with Major Doyle when he talks about the buddy system and how important it was in the military to have a buddy who who you could kind of really connect with um, I thought that was just a really powerful message yeah I completely agree and I like how he said you know you can have these people to talk to and it's not that you're looking for advice for them. So I imagine if you're a clinician, you might want to talk to friends and family, but you're not expecting necessarily advice from them on how to deal with the situation. It's just having that ability to talk to people and decompress. And I also really liked his um, example of kind of using that personal statement to remind himself why he was doing what he was doing. And again, I imagine there are some people who maybe do occasionally need to remind themselves why they're doing what they're doing when it's things are really really tough so I thought that was a, a really good idea definitely and I think I think you know that was again really strong when Covid first started you know people coming out of retirement and people like me who had sort of stepped back from clinical practice kind of volunteering to go back onto the front line and, and really reconnecting with that sense of why you became a, a doctor in the first place and you know the, so your sort of vision of that um, and then as things change and, and the health system so tries to kind of go back to normal or a new version of normal you can really lose touch with that again so I think that personal statement and that real connection to your I guess not the kind of wider purpose not what the NHS is trying to do or what the country is trying to do but your own vision of of what you should be doing and your own values I think that's really important um I think for me the other thing that resonated really really strongly was just feeling that everything you can do is enough um, because I think there's this real sense of, you know, we don't know what we're doing, you know, talk about politicians making it up as we go, go along, but obviously at the moment, you know, clinicians are making it up as we go along. They don't have the guidance, the science isn't moving necessarily as fast as, as they need it to, and, you know, making a lot of decisions in limited inf with limited information. Um, and I think just uh, believing that, that that's okay and that you're doing the best you can in the face of a huge crisis and not feeling that weight on your shoulders is something very oppressive but you know just accepting that, that that's the nature of it it's very difficult I think I think that's a, a really good point and a really nice place to wrap this up on so I'll say thank you very much to Ali Milani for coming on the podcast I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Certainly a lot to think about. Um, you can check us out on social media. We're at BMJ underscore latest on Twitter, or you can join our BMJ Wellbeing group on Facebook. And please let us know your ideas for what we might cover in the future. Until next time, it's goodbye from us. Goodbye. Bye.